We want to just turn to the Word of God, and uh, I want to just bring to you some verses that Sam actually read to us, the first seven verses of, of Luke chapter 2. You know, it's always difficult at this uh, time of year to say something fresh and new and different because you're drawn to the same passages over and over again uh, each year. And I suppose, but in a way, it's not so important that I say something new, but something true. And that's what I want to uh, do this evening. I want to turn your attention to this well-known passage in Luke chapter 2, which records for us the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sinclair Ferguson, the theologian, said that when he was a little boy, he... um, he used to get so excited on Christmas morning, rushing down the stairs into the living room, opening his presence, and the joy and anticipation of that moment was, was fantastic. So much so that on Christmas Day evening, he wrapped up his presents so that he could repeat the process on Boxing Day. Well, that's what I want to do this evening, that we might have a fresh appreciation of these eternal truths that they might come to us in a a fresh, and maybe not a new way, but a a fresh way. Now, we're we're turning to this passage of Scripture, and I want you to notice four things from Luke chapter 2. First of all, we see Scripture fulfilled. In verse 4, we are told that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Luke chapter 2. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house of David. Now, Bethlehem means house of bread, and it was situated five miles south of Jerusalem. So it was the Glengormley, or the Lisburn, or the Hollywood of Jerusalem. It was the home of Boaz and Ruth, and it was there the great-grandson, their great-grandson, David, was born, and it was there that Samuel anointed him as king. As you know, David became the greatest king that Israel ever had. And just as Hollywood is known as the home of Rory McIlroy, so Bethlehem was known as the town of David. And it was in this time, by a quirk of history, Jesus was born rather in the town of Nazareth, the home of Mary and Joseph. And by being born in Bethlehem rather than Nazareth, our Lord fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. Now that Old Testament prophecy was read to us by Judith from Micah chapter 5. It's a remarkable prophecy because it tells us of his royalty, that out of you will come a ruler over Israel. It speaks of his deity whose origins are from old, literally from ancient times, uh, from everlasting. It's that word's used in Psalm 19, from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. It speaks of his humanity, that he would come into this world through the normal process of childbirth when she who is in labor gives birth. And it speaks of his supremacy, that his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. A remarkable, remarkable prophecy. And yet, at the head of that stands this this revelation that he would be born in Bethlehem. In Bethlehem. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one who will be ruler over Israel. Notice that the location is actually revealed and specified. 
Bethlehem Ephrathah to distinguish it from the two other Bethlehems, Nazareth and, Nazareth and Zebulun. So the prophecy identifies the place where the Savior, the Messiah, would be born. As we heard in our reading from dawn, the wise men come and they asked uh, Herod, where is the one born king uh, of the Jews? And Herod sends for the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they open this scroll, the scroll of Micah, Micah chapter 5, and they identify the place of Bethlehem as the location where the Messiah would come. Now, that prophecy, and I want you to think about it, that prophecy in Micah was given 700 years, 700 years before the birth of Jesus. The Old Testament was completed, this is a historical fact, was completed 400 years before the birth of Jesus. In our Bibles, we have a, an Old Testament and a New Testament. And the Old Testament was completed 400 years before the birth of Jesus. And Herod was able to consult this Old Testament revelation to determine where the Messiah would be born. Now, let that sink in. I want you to bury all doubts about the uniqueness, about the divine origin and the inspiration of this book in that fact. You, you imagine some revelation given uh, in the 1400s, the 1400s, seven or eight hundred years ago, the time of the Black Death, the, the time of uh, the fall of Constantine in the Roman Empire, the time of the Crusades, that some revelation had been given back then about today. People would be poring over those records to find out what had happened. If Nostradamus or some other self-appointed astrologer had made such predictions, we would be reading them and listening to them. But here in the Old Testament, the birth of the Messiah and the exact location of the birth of the Messiah is revealed. So we see prophecy fulfilled. Secondly, we see providence in action. So in Micah, we have this prophecy, this prediction that the Messiah would come to Bethlehem. Now, there was only one problem with that, and it was a big problem. Mary and Joseph lived in Nazareth, which was 80 miles north of Bethlehem, and in days before planes, trains, and automobiles, or motorways, railways, and cycle paths, travel was minimal, and people usually were born, grew up, and died in the area that they lived. Now, Judaism was a little bit different because once a year, the Jews, at least once a year, the Jews had to go up to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the three annual feasts. But generally, travel was difficult and dangerous, and people didn't travel unless they had to. In our church in Balamani, we had two retired missionaries, Sam and Mary Sloan, and Sam Sloan told me, he was from Dunseverick, he told me that before he went to Peru, the furthest he traveled was Coleraine. So he, he went into Bush Mills once a week to get his shopping, and he went into Coleraine once a year for Christmas shopping. Well, that's the kind of society that Mary and Joseph were born into. So you can see, you can see the problem. How on earth would this prophecy of Micah be fulfilled that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem when Mary and Joseph lived in Nazareth? 
Well, in verses 1 and 3 of Luke chapter 1 to 3 of Luke chapter 2, we're told in those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his hometown to register. Now, Caesar Augustus was the great nephew of Julius Caesar. We know him better by the name Octavian. Uh, Caesar Augustus was the title that he took to himself. He rose to power by defeating Antony and Cleopatra, who committed suicide and united the world under Roman world. Uh, One of his other titles given to him was the savior of the world. Now, he had a passion for statistics. He was an accountant at heart. And he introduced a system that every 14 years, the citizens of the various provinces had to register for tax purposes. Interestingly enough, almost every document, every census from AD 20 to 270 still exists and can be viewed today. Now, this census took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. That's the Roman province of Syria, which included Judea. Now, through Octavian's decree and Quirinius's implementation of it, Mary and Joseph had to return to their hometown of Bethlehem to register. And it's during that trip that the Scripture is fulfilled and Jesus is born. Now, think about this for a moment. What if Mark Antony had defeated Octavian and remained in power? Would a census ever have been taken? Would the journey ever have been made? Would the journey be taken so late in pregnancy? That prophecy would have remained unfulfilled. And here we have God as the Lord of history managing and orchestrating events to fulfill the prophecy that he had given 700 years before. And this is the doctrine of divine sovereignty, that God is working in all situations to accomplish his purposes. You can even see that in the journey itself. It seems Jesus was premature, because it's unlikely that they would have set out on the journey uh, if the birth was expected soon. God was in charge of all these events, working and weaving them so that his word would be fulfilled. And our God can do that. R.C. Sproul says there's not one maverick molecule in the whole universe that isn't under his control. Spurgeon says it was Caesar's whim, but it was God's decree. The Bible tells us the king's heart is in the Lord's hands, and it's, it's like a water course. He can direct it whatever way he wants. Is that not a comfort to know that God's on the throne and God is working out his purposes in our world with all that's happening in Israel and Gaza and the Ukraine and in our cities and the secularization that we see around us? God is still on the throne and he's working history around to fulfill his purposes that history is his story. So we see prophecy fulfilled. We see providence in action. Thirdly, we see humility displayed. Notice the circumstances that surrounded the birth of our Lord. Now, this is the familiar territory that I spoke about by way uh, of introduction. But look at verses uh, 6 and 7. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger. 
The whole narrative breathes, breathes humility and reveals to us the great condescension of our Lord. You see that in the place that he was born, Bethlehem. Apart from the, the, the fact that it was the home of David, it was a pretty insignificant place. It was dwarfed by its bigger and more significant neighbor, Jerusalem. The prophecy in Micah that Judith read to us uh, reads, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, small, the authorized version says little, uh, which gives rise to that hymn, O little town of Bethlehem. Little in size, little in reputation, little in significance, a pretty insignificant place. Now think of this for a moment. If you and I were left to script the birth of Jesus, choreograph the incarnation, he would never have been born in Bethlehem, but one of the great cities of the ancient world, in Rome, in Athens, in Alexandria, or even in Jerusalem, the Paris, the New York, the London of the ancient world. But God disregarded the big, the bold, and the beautiful, the glitz and glamour of the big city, and his son was born in the backwater of Bethlehem. You see the humble circumstances that surrounded our Lord's birth. The woman he chose was a 14-year-old peasant from Nazareth. You remember the words of Nathaniel, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So it was a humble place. It was a humble person. And then humble circumstances. When Jesus is born, he was delivered in an outhouse with all the smells and germs of the farmyard. If you conjure up in your mind those pictures of a freshly swept, sanitized stable that appear on our Christmas cards, you miss the point. It was filthy. It was awful. It was dirty. It was downright dangerous for a baby to be born in such circumstances. There was no hot water or clean tiles. You know, in the films, they always send for hot water and clean tiles. I never know what that's for. But, but anyway, they, they sent. There are no, no clean tiles and hot water. There's no crib and blankets. There was sweat and pain, anxiety and worry, tears and prayers as Mary cried that God might protect her little baby among the, the mess and the madness of the stable around them. The earth was cold and damp. The straw was stained with the muck of the animals and the smell hung in the air. There was no midwife. The big rustic hands of the carpenter grasped God's slippery son before he fell onto the filthy straw that lay on the floor. Here was the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, coming into the world. He was coming into our world in the worst uh, circumstances imaginable. Mary, weakened as she was, cuts up her petticoats into little strips and wraps those strips around the torso and then the four limbs to keep her precious bundle warm, perhaps even in her darkest moments, wondering if he would survive the night. This was the humility of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus. It was dirty, diseased, and dangerous. And yet the circumstances that surrounded the birth of our Lord were only a small indicator of all that was involved in the incarnation. These conditions were dreadful for, every, for any child coming into the world, but this was the Son of God. 
Who is he in yonder stall at whose feet the shepherds fall? Tis the Lord, a wondrous story. Tis the Lord, the King of glory. At his feet you humbly fall. Crown him, crown him, Lord of all. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that though he was rich, rich, he enjoyed the riches and the splendor and the adoration of heaven. He was the center of, of worship of the angelic host. Though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich. You see, the smallness and the littleness of Bethlehem and the birth narrative revealed to us the humiliation of our Lord, that he who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be retained, something to be held onto, but made himself nothing and humbled himself, taking the very nature of a servant and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The story of the incarnation is down, down to the womb of a virgin, down to a manger in Bethlehem, down to the obscurity of Nazareth, and down to the cross of Calvary. Martin Luther used to intellectually wonder what was the biggest step for the second person of the Trinity, from, from heaven to the manger, or from the manger to the cross. But the truth is that the step from heaven to the manger included uh, that step to the cross. And the, the manger was an indication of the humiliation that he would suffer by going to the cross. And why did he do it? Why did the praise and adoration of the angelic hosts of heaven come into our world? Well, Joseph was told, you shall give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. How marvelous, how wonderful, how staggering, how mind-blowing. Pause my soul, adore and wonder. Ask, oh, why such love to me? Grace has put me in the number of the Savior's family. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Grace shall reign eternally. So we see Scripture fulfilled. We see providence in action. We see humility displayed. And the last thing is we see rejection experienced. I suppose Bethlehem was very busy with the census and accommodation was at a premium. It may have been that due to financial restraints, restraints, Mary and Joseph didn't even intend to stay. That's why they hadn't accommodation arranged, that they would just register and then they would go back home. But the baby arrived and Mary went into labor and he was born in an animal outhouse because there was no room at the inn. I suppose they tried various places, but as labor intensified, uh, they took the accommodation that was offered to them, and, and our Lord was born in an inn. Remember, some years ago, we were camping in, in the highlands of Scotland, and we were coming down to get the, the boat in Cairn Ryan. And uh, as we were, were coming down, we planned to stay the night and get the boat early the next morning. But the British Open was on. And all the B&Bs were, were filled, full, and uh, we couldn't get accommodation. So we went into the tourist information office in air, and the, the woman behind the desk said to us, well, I have one room left, one room left in air, and uh, I'll book it now for you. So she booked it. Uh, Andrew was about six months old. So we arrived at this house, and uh, she, the woman welcomed us, 
And I said, I'll just get the travel cot from the, the car. And she said, no baby's here. No baby's here. And she turned us away. And we had to drive all the way back to Glasgow and stay in an expensive hotel because all other accommodation was, was taken. But here are Mary and Joseph. They refused a place to stay and end up giving birth in an animal outhouse. Think about that for a moment. How prophetic that was. The Son of God comes into the world and there's no room for him. It was true at his birth. It was true of his ministry. Stephen read to us, he came on to his own and his own received him not. Think of the chief priests and the teachers of the law who actually go to Herod and identify the place of the Savior's birth. Do they follow the wise men? Do they go to Bethlehem to see the one who is born king of the Jews? No, they go home and forget about it. They are indifferent to it and ultimately reject him by crucifying him. The creator put to death at the hands of the creature. Do you remember back, well, not all of you will remember back to the millennium, and do you remember the millennium dome, now the O2 arena, and how that was constructed to celebrate the millennium, 2,000 years since Christ came, 2,000 years. And in that dome, there was a, a real fuss because there was no reference to Jesus Christ, the one who the millennium was all about. There was no reference to Jesus Christ. There was no room at the inn, and there was no room in the dome, and there was no room in, his wor in the world because they ultimately took him and crucified him. And the same is true today. A lady in the church was telling me about her son who had a, a carol service in London with his work, and he went to church, and they had, uh, I saw father kissing Santa Claus. I saw, no, that's worse. That's bad. <laughs> I, I saw mommy. <laughs> Well, it, it might have been. <laughs> I saw a mummy kissing Santa Claus. Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer. Uh, Santa Claus is coming to town, and not one carol, not one carol. And in the address, Christ wasn't even mentioned. People want all the trappings of Christmas, but they don't want the one who Christmas is all about. And that rejection at the inn is still being experienced today. In Luke chapter 2, 1 to 7, we see Scripture fulfilled, providence in action, humility displayed, and rejection experienced. I, I just want to ask you when, you, when you think of Jesus coming into the world and fleshing himself and coming into our world, that he came on a mission to save his people from their sins. That's what the name Jesus means. Uh, uh, Jehovah saves. Has he saved you? Are you still closing your heart just as those indoors were closed to Mary and Joseph? Are you still closing your heart to the love and to the invitation that Jesus makes when he says, come on to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke uh, upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. We will not have this man rule over us. We, we don't want him in our life. We want Christmas. We want all the tinsel and the, the toys, but we don't want him. And he comes. 
and He offers you eternal life. As many as received Him, to them give He the right to become the sons of God. He came unto His own, His own received Him not, but as many as received Him, to them give He the right to become the sons of God. And it's my prayer that you'll not close the door as they did at the end in the face of the Lord Jesus, but that you would open your heart and receive him as your Savior and Lord. Amen.